everyone, this is Kate Kelly, founder of Ordain Women. And I just wanted to talk about the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. It is just such an invaluable resource. I love listening to it. I came to a point in my life where I just really needed to hear the voices of women telling stories about women. And that's what this podcast is. Lindsay's series about polygamy is unique and totally unprecedented. It's a wonderful resource and women doing wonderful work deserve to get paid. So please support the podcast if you can. If you can make a regular donation of just $5 a month, it would mean a lot. And it means not only that you continue to get wonderful material and stuff to listen to, but it also means that women doing this work are supported, which is important. So please support the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in a year of polygamy series where we try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage and figure out how it affects our lives today. Today, we're going to be talking about the church in about 1880s to about the 1920s. Since we're moving into the sort of break-offs of the sects and uh, the fundamentalists, it's important for us to have some context for us to understand what's going on during this time, during the manifesto, during, during the post-manifesto marriages. What was the church like? What did it look like? Who, who was interacting with whom and, and what things were going on? Obviously, for a list of those prophets of the church, for those who have never heard about Mormonism and are joining us, obviously the church started with Joseph Smith Jr., who is the prophet and president of the church, and then, of course, Brigham Young. And we've talked about both of them quite in depth. And then there is John Taylor, and we've also talked about him. He was the one that had the, the 1886 revelation that sort of starts fundamentalism. So he's the third prophet. Wilford Woodruff would come next, then Lorenzo Snow, and then Joseph F. Smith. So from about that time, from about uh, John Taylor to Joseph F. Smith, are kind of the guys that are going to be running this show. And we, we bump into Heber J. Grant, who was also one of the prophets at the time. And of course, Heber J. Grant would be involved with polygamy. So he was sort of the last Mormon prophet to be involved with plural marriage. So at from about... You know, the 1880s to about the 1930s, we have John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, Lorenzo Snow, and Joseph F. Smith. And then Heber J. Grant covers a huge period of that time. So those are the guys we're going to be talking about that are the presidents of the church. Let's talk about what the church looked like. You know, in the contemporary modern day LDS church, we have wards and stakes. Those are kind of the basic units of the church. The 19th century ward was a little bit different. But some significant changes would happen towards the end of Brigham Young's life and kind of be changed as these new men took office. Stakes began to be more administrative than they originally were. 
Leonard Arrington says, if the ward was equivalent to a parish, the stake, so named after the biblical analogy of a large tent held in place by stakes on all sides, was equivalent to a diocese, encompassing several congregations. In the last year of Young's life, the church was systematically divided into stakes. The stake would take over the responsibilities that the, that the bishops had usually had to begin with. So bishops controlled the schools, the taxes, irrigation, land agreements, business enterprises. They would judge the civil disputes, and they began to turn those over to the governments, and the stake started, sort of became more encompassing. By 1877, Brigham Young directed bishops to include the sacrament, which is also the communion, to the Sunday school exercises. So it previously wasn't included in sort of these organized meetings until 1877. And this was mostly because few children attended the afternoon sacrament meeting with their parents. It was really broken down into these different blocks of time, and children didn't go, and so they decided this was going to be something they're going to do every week to try to get the children to take the sacrament as well. We know that uh, as early as 1849, some wards were experimenting with Sunday schools for children, but it was Aurelia Spencer Rogers who was paying attention to the boys in her, you know, her sort of country rural ward, and she felt that they were too frontier, they were too influenced by the conditions and had too many worldly values. So she recommended that they have a weekday meeting, and in 1878, she established that she helps establish the primary association. So by 1890, within like less than 20 years, forms of these classes were being even appended into public schools because church leaders felt that public schools were not providing enough religious instruction for these kids. So it didn't matter if you were native, didn't matter if you were so-called Gentile, you were included in these sort of religious trainings. The retrenchment associations, which really included the youth, were founded by Brigham Young as a way to stop the world sort of seeping into the culture. And they would be renamed in 1875 the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association. And that was the same year that the Young Men's Mutual Improvement Association was founded. So MIA is what they call it. Um, so a Young Men and Young Women's Association was established in each ward, and the MIA General Board was appointed to supervise and improve the ward programs. And so as the saints get settled, they kind of come into their own They've got, you know, things are settling down with the government. We see correlation becoming sort of this benefit of less tension with the government, uh, less friction with the land and the struggle. As the saints gain more wealth, things become a little bit more organized and a little bit more correlated. Brigham Young would make the directive uh, to ordain boys at the age of 12. At this time, and the ironic priesthood gradually became a young men's calling. The deacon's quorum had no set lessons, but there were often musical numbers, readings, and lectures from their leaders. The deacons were assigned to gather fast offerings and make distributions for the bishops, and of course, the reports at this time saying that lots of boys were not following through on this, just like now. They would read sections from the scriptures, but they would also read readings like Ben-Hur, Tom Sawyer, and the Jungle Book. And uh, Leonard Arrington talks about this in The Mormon Experience, and you can read about this on page 215. In fact, in the Granite Stake in Salt Lake City, they had, quote, mutual missionaries. And they included the youth and also about 60 women who 
sort of went out and campaigned the inactive members and non-members doing, quote, much good among careless girls, end quote. Without the Mutual Improvement Association, President Heber J. Grant would say, quote, we would have large numbers of our young men joining the various secret societies for cheap insurance and sociability, end quote. So these leaders were very concerned about their youth. Uh, we talked earlier about Heber C. Kimball's family and how they had a reputation there, sort of these rampant youth, these brothers were running around causing, they were almost like a gang. They were running around causing trouble and smoking and being coarse and, you know, womanizing and breaking the law. And because they were, you know, related to this famous family, they were allowed to do this. So you can see that the, you know, the leadership was very worried about this as the children are taken from these sort of frontier harsh conditions and there's a little bit more luxury. They find more time to get into trouble, I guess. And of course, the Pioneer Meeting House would have been very simple. It would have been like a rectangular shape, very square, very symmetrical, probably with a big, large room on the ground level that you could convert into the chapel and maybe use into a dance hall if you needed or a schoolhouse if required. And if it was a really fancy one, it might have a small assembly hall or classrooms or food storages in the basement or maybe even sometimes a jail, right? These buildings had to do a lot of things. They, they had to be, they had to be very versatile. The buildings began to change, uh, you know, around this time and classrooms were added to accommodate this, the Sunday school program. And in fact, in 1911, Boy Scout rooms were encouraged. So they wanted individual rooms just for that. And of course, we get this new sort of correlated term, the ward family, because these wards are actually being divided into these dense areas. And of course, since we still have an influx of immigrants, uh, they were predominantly divided by ethnicity. So there were predominantly Scandinavian words in Skull Valley. And hopefully we're going to talk about this some more. I'm doing some research because I really want to include the stories of um, people of color that were on the frontier because they were there. Uh, in Skull Valley out by me, there was a Hawaiian word called Yosepa for Joseph. They named it uh, Joseph, and you can still actually drive out there. It's it's sort of this memorial out there. It's kind of this haunting, haunting place, and uh, you can imagine being a Hawaiian convert, leaving these lush, beautiful islands, and being sent out to the dry, desolate desert of Skull Valley. But apparently, you know, they they really made it flourish, um, even though that they were sort of treated poorly by their white brothers and sisters. So so that was a word out there. Uh, there were also Welsh wards that boasted the best choirs in Utah. Leonard Arrington says, quote, Every 19th century ward has its own stories and legends, heroes and heroines, and members who were eccentric or different. One bishop exercised his prerogative and chose as one of his counselors a non-member of the church. A new beet sugar factory had been built in the village, and most adult members of the ward worked there, so the bishop picked the factory superintendent as a counselor to ensure a harmony of interest between the ward and the management of the factory, end quote. And then Arrington goes on to tell these great stories in this book about a bishop. He was a bishop counselor in southern Utah, and he decides to make these big boots one day. He makes like these giant boots, and he goes out after the rain, and he makes these giant footprints all around the town to play this sort of practical joke on his congregants. And people start to get worried. There starts to get rumors that there's this giant living among them, and, and it causes 
fear and terror. And of course he fusses up, but people would talk for years about the terror that they felt. They thought, you know, that their children were going to be attacked or something by this, by this giant. He also tells a story about a young man that managed a ward store and he made this special ink that, uh, could only be read when he applied heat. And he would write scriptural messages on a certain brown hen, hen's eggs. So he would write these sort of like prophetic messages on this brown hen's eggs. So every time she would lay it, people would run over and say, oh my gosh, what did, the, what is the hen trying to tell us? And it got to the point where the town would gather to see what, what it was going to say next about the town's gossip. Sometimes it would reveal things about the town. And the man's father arrives and he happened to be an apostle. So he calls a special priesthood meeting and he said he had just visited Brigham Young and verified that Brigham Young was still talking to God. The Lord, he said, had not yet resorted to the hind end of a hen to convey his messages to the people. And you can read that in Polson, let's see, Ezra J. Polson and Joseph C. Rich's versatile pioneer on the Mormon frontier. I think it's on page 201. So as things are getting organized and correlated, of course, Utah celebrates statehood in 1896. We see a new generation of Mormon women sort of developing the church. So we have the manifesto in 1890, and we have women in this sort of transitory generation. They, you know, might have been born out of marriages that happened in the 50s or 60s or 70s, but now polygamy is starting to become less and less of an option. There's more federal pressure. So these women would have an interesting sort of time of transition. They would experience some of the persecutions of their foremothers because they would, as children or as young women, experience the federal deputies coming into the, to their town, but they wouldn't have this, you know, sort of extreme deprivation of their pioneer parents. And most of them would be largely integrated into society. And so they would get along with the so-called Gentiles more, you know, and sort of letting popular culture seep in, the world seep in. There, of course, are some women that really go out and make make names for themselves. In 1892, Alice Lewis Reynolds would leave the family of her polygamous father. She would go for courses in English at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. And she would return two years later to Provo to teach the first classes in Chaucer and Shakespeare, offered at the Brigham Young Academy, which is now BYU. And she continued graduate studies at the University of Chicago. She would teach in Provo and then finish her graduate studies outside of Utah. Of course, we have Emmy, Emma Lucy Gate, who in 1897 leaves Salt Lake at the age of 17 to study music in Europe. And she was, she was a phenomenon. She was chaperoned by her grandmother, Lucy Bigelow Young, who happened to be a plural wife of Brigham Young. And Emma Lucy would study in France and Germany and then would make her debut at the Royal Opera of Berlin. And she toured with the continent and sang leading roles in the German state opera until World War I broke out and she had to come back to Utah. There was Mary Teasdale. She studied painting in Paris in 1899 with Jules Simon and James Abbott McNeil Whistler. Before she left France in 1902, she would show her works of art at the International French Exposition and return to Utah to teach art and work at the Utah Art Institute. And then there's Amy Brown Lyman. She's She becomes an influential woman. She attends classes at the University of Chicago while her husband was studying there during the summer of 1902. And she would invest her time to volunteer working at the James Adams's whole house. Now, just a background on Jane Adams, for those who don't know, she was a pioneer American social worker. She sort of, she sort of like instituted and pioneered the field of social work. She's also a public philosopher and sociologist and a, and a big suffragist and really 
worked on issues of world peace and social justice. And she was one of the most prominent reformers of the progressive era. era. So she helped turn American issues to the concerns of mothers, such as the needs of children, local public health, world peace, disabled rights. She said that if women were to be responsible for cleaning up their communities and making them better places to live, they needed the vote to be effective in doing so. So Adams becomes sort of this like figurehead for the middle class women to volunteer and uplift their communities. So, of course, Amy Brown Lyman goes and works at the whole, the whole house that she has established and gets really worked up and really fired up and passionate about these issues. Of course, Jane Addams would be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. And uh, so working around in and around this environment would have been really cool for Amy Brown Lyman. So Amy Brown Lyman leaves Chicago with this greater awareness of women's issues. She just, it, this fits with what she knows about the Relief Society and things like that. So in, in 1914, the Relief Society moved away from these sort of locally planned lessons, and they sort of go towards a church-wide adoption of uniform course study. So each month they would have one lesson in one of the four areas, which were theology, social sciences, literature, and homemaking. So imagine your early study lessons now and compare them to what it would have been like then. The early social science lessons dealt with health, sanitation, social welfare, you know, the the state of the poor and, and things like that. Literature courses covered English and American poetry, novels, and plays. So imagine like reading a famous playwright in early society. It was, it was very important for these saints to sort of get cultured and educated. And, and, and it's a very empowering idea to use the early society to do something like this. So the Young Ladies Mutual Improvement Association that had formerly been the Retrenchment Association had young women studying the Bible ethics and literature. And and then it would include some instruction on vocation and marital guidance. Lessons from 1905 show that Mormon girls were reading uh, all kinds of amazing authors. They were reading Cornea, uh, Descartes, Goethe, Locke, Swift, and they were studying to- topics such as, quote, the girl who earns the money. One lesson in the Young Women's Journal for April of 1905 exclaim, explained that Mormon girls could, quote, enter any avenue of artistic or business life without question. And they encouraged fields in, in that lesson, such as medicine, music, or astronomy. The manual said, quote, a girl in our church may and does go upon missions to preach the gospel. She may pray, preach, and prophesy under the restrictions of wisdom and propriety, end quote. And you can find that in Mormon Experience, page 252. Here we also start to see the shift towards making motherhood the top priority. Again, these, this is sort of a position of privilege now. The saints have been settled for a while. They're sort of really wanting to establish this home front. This is, this is, you know, going along with these tensions in the country that are, are going to lead up to the world wars and things like that. But as America is sort of settling in to some relative wealth, we see this idea of motherhood sort of being idealized. The Relief Study begins motherhood training classes in 1902, and it was largely rooted in a social, uh, social scienti- sciences issue. So they emphasized prenatal infant care and child rearing. It was to be instructional to help these women give them the school, the tools and skills they needed. In 1908, President Joseph F. Smith would assign a committee to review the situation of the youth. He was mostly concerned about the, the boys 
structures and what they were doing, and so he wanted this committee to make recommendations. So the result was that the methods of strengthening the quorums were adopted from successful auxiliaries. So priesthood meetings, which had been held irregularly and mostly for business reasons, were not turned in, were now turned into weekly instruction sessions with lesson manuals, and the meetings were divided into classes for each of the six offices in the two priesthoods. Bishops tried to get wayward boys back into activity, and older boys were assigned specifically to be ward teachers to the widowed, aged, and poor. During much of the 20th century, the beginning of it, the Relief Society and other auxiliaries, for that matter, held a full-scale conference of its own in conjunction with General Conference. At the April 1929 conference, the Relief Society sort of sponsored a breakfast for the Ward and Stake Relief Society presidents. The church was small enough then for this this to happen, to have all these presidents there. And the presidents were asked to you know, we're invited to ask questions of the general board. So here's a transcript, and you can find this on Keep a Pitching In. Um, here are some of the questions that were asked then. Question, is it advisable? Again, these are questions from 1928. Question, is it advisable for Relief Society women to address each, each other by the first names in Relief Society meetings? And the answer was, it is preferable that the Relief Society women address each other by the last names in Relief Society meetings, example, Sister Jones, rather than Mary or Susan. It is more dignified and tends toward better order and discipline. Then another question was asked. Question. Is it proper to give help to inactive members and non-members when in dire circumstances and who are even undesirable citizens in some respects? Answer. Nobody should suffer for food and clothing in our communities. At the same time, it is not the responsibility of the LDS Church to take care of all those who are in need. Non-members of the church are not the responsibility of the LDS Relief Society. The church, however, has a certain responsibility for its own members, even though they are inactive. In helping the needy, the first responsibility is that of relatives, the second is that of the country, and the third is that of the churches, lodges, clubs, etc. All cases of dire need should be reported to the county officials, including cases of Latter-day Saints. The LDS Relief Society should cooperate with the county in caring for their own church needy and should be willing to contribute relief if the county is not able to supply a sufficient amount for the family. Where non-members of the church are in dire need, it would be a courtesy for the Relief Society to report this condition to the county and to continue to report it until the county responds. Another question. Could a good woman who is married out of the church be made chairman of the burial clothes committee? And the answer was, preferably not. Question. Could such a woman be made president of a ward organization? And the answer was, this question should be invariably referred to a local priesthood in the community. A decision necessarily would have to depend on the conditions in the community in our wards at home, where practically all the women in the Relief Society are married in the church. It would be very easy to find a woman forward president who can meet every requirement. In scattered communities and in the mission, conditions are different, and such questions should be referred to local priesthood. And anyway, so they go on, and I'm going to link to this because there's some great Great questions like, I'll give you one more. What is the church's attitude on women wearing hats in the Relief Society board and other meetings? And the answer was, it is customary for the women in the church to remove their hats in meeting. Some states, there's a law against wearing hats in public meetings and entertainments. So these are the questions that women were thinking about in 1928. Susie Young Gates, who of course was, you know, rumored to be Brigham Young's favorite daughter, 
would say, quote, Mormon women generally chose home life as their major occupation, making public activities incidental. And of course, she would know what she was talking about because she was a prolific writer. She was a genealogist, a musician, a teacher, a home economist, a suffragist. She traveled all over. She was a church worker. And she did all of this while raising 13 children. So she's sort of this quintessential Mormon woman. From the minutes of a state conference in 1919, the 43rd quarterly state conference of the North Weber Stake of Zion was held in the Ogden Tabernacle. And here's something that they were talking about in 1990. This is read from the minutes. Quote, Counselor John V. Bluth made a brief report of the condition in the stake and called attention to the changes that had occurred in the history of the world, the nation, the state, the church as a whole, and the stake since we last met in, in September 1918. Among those he named or briefly commented on were the following, the victories of the Allies in the war, the taking of St. Mihail salient by the Americans under General Pershing, with which withstood the assaults of the Allies for four years the Aragon Forest Drive, the taking of Sedan, which broke the German line in two, and finally the sighting of Armistice on November 11th, which ended the war. He quoted the prophetic utterance of President Grant at the previous June conference, possibly the gloomiest moment in all the struggle for the Allied arms, when he declared, quote, I do not know what other people may think, but there is no doubt whatever in the heart of every true Latter-day Saint as how to the war is going to end. We have no fear the Kaiser shall ever rule over this land of ours, end quote. The scourge of influenza, which covered practically the entire world and which took 400,000 people in the United States alone, which began after the September conference and had now apparently run its course. He commented on the fact that not one of his officers embraced in the list of 112 officers in the stake had been taken during the scourge. And anyway, he goes on. They talk about Theodore Roosevelt. They talk about the nation. You can tell that as you know, the 19th century is moving into the 20th century. The saints are getting less and less insular. They're not caring so much about these issues of polygamy as they are what's going on in the nation around them, just like the rest of the world is. And I will also link to that. Um, Relief Society and mutual groups try to educate women in sort of these family relationships as the 20th century gets going. In 1928, a course for older girls focused on the everlasting covenant, marriage and family life. And these would deal with a marriage contract, mutual obligations and expectations of husbands and wives and the rights of children and childless parents. Of course, this sort of war culture, post-war culture, um, plays into this, right? This, you know, after wars, we see in America, this sort of retrenchment back into the family. You know, these men get home and we want to be this, this idealized family again. And we see this happening. The, the church is responding to this in their manuals. Arrington would say, quote, although their silk raising and cooperatives and halls fell further into the past as the 20th century moved forward, Mormon women recommitted themselves to the community virtues Joseph Smith had admonished them to strengthen in Nauvoo. The Relief Society, for example, used the wheat they had stored in local granaries to provide relief to the victims of the San Francisco earthquake in 1906 and to relieve famine in China in 1907. During World War I, Relief Society women involved themselves in food production in the sales of Liberty Bonds, sewing, knitting, bandage 
making and homemaking courses of the Red Cross. They sold 200,000 bushels of the wheat to the U.S. government for the use of Allied Relief. Now, of course, we talk about this in the History of Relief Society episode, so if you haven't heard that, go back and listen to that and hear about some of the things that they were doing. And, of course, Amy Brown Lyman, who had gone to the whole house and uh, came back from Chicago with all these uh, these uh, progressive ideas, in 1919, she founds the Relief Society Social Service Department, and she really tries to help the homeless, collect and act, disperse funds for the poor. She uses money that they earn from the wheat sales to invest in state-sponsored programs for child and maternity care. She sets up health care clinics for preschoolers, and these these clinics established by the church gave corrective dental work, eyeglasses, tonsillectomies, and other required surgeries, and medicine and baby layettes were provided for mothers and children who were unable to pay. And some stakes even equipped and managed their own maternity homes. According to Susie Young Gates... 19th century Mormons shifted their advocacy from polygamy to peace. The Relief Society changed from encouraging homeowned commission stores and began advocating for consumer responsibility. We see these ideas that Brigham Young didn't really want to happen, these ideas of the world coming in. Spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues and anointing and blessing the sick become far less fashionable, and the healing ordinances start to evolve into a strictly priestly function. In fact, we have J. Reuben Clark in a 1939 article in the church uh, magazine to the Relief Society say, quote, you have more or less taken on the attributes that are attached in the world to cultural clubs, end quote. So you see this sort of moving away from these things. So when we're talking about these struggles of polygamy, remember it's in this time that, that the world is sort of focusing on this more national view. The the saints were largely sheltered from the Civil War, so they didn't have to deal with that because they were so, you know, desperately focused on setting up their own land and, you know, separating from the U.S. government. And although the Civil War absolutely did affect them, it just wasn't as sort of earth-shaking as it was when they became a state and they become patriotic again. We start to see them care about the issues of the nation again. And of course, polygamy is still happening during this time. It's easy to forget when we talk about these great things happening in Relief Society, we forget that these are polygamous women that are helping enact this. So let's talk about polygamy for a minute. We're going to be talking in our next episode, I'm going to be dedicating a whole episode talking about what happened when the feds came in and started, you know, enforcing this anti-polygamy legislation. I'm going to tell you one story to kind of to kind of whet your appetite for for these stories. This is a great story from the Polygamous Wife's Writing Club from Paula Kelly Harleen, who we had on earlier. And if you haven't bought her book, you need to buy her book. This is such great history, such great public history. It really, really brings these women's stories to life. And these stories are just heartbreaking. So she tells the story of Lorena Larson. She was a woman that lived in Monroe, Utah. And you know, we see her in 1887. She has this one, you know, this very rectangular adobe house, one story. And she is sort of the 19th century Pinterest queen because she would make all these beautiful crafts for her home and people would always remark on how beautifully decorated it was. She claimed actually that a salesman once stopped by and heaved a sigh saying, Oh, what solid comfort a man could take reading the paper in a home like this. So I just picture her being that, you know, Mormon Pinterest woman. 
Lorena would become the second wife to Bent Larson, and she marries him at age 20. She had many other marriage proposals, and she said she, quote, believed that there were several people in the world that a person could love. When she was 15, a bishop wanted to marry her. But Lorena felt really uncomfortable with this. She liked the bishop. She said he was a nice man, but she felt really young about it. And so this shows that she wasn't forced, she wasn't coerced or pressured, which is important because we have heard so many stories of that happening. But there are instances like this where Lorena said, nope, he's too young. And in fact, the, the bishop was quite aggressive. He he told her father, quote, I love that girl dearly and will never give her up as long as she is single, end quote. But he was out of luck because she'd never married him. When she was 16, she was engaged to marry a young man from another town, but she broke it off, again, feeling too young, too inexperienced. She was a little bit afraid to commit. She could have easily chosen to be the first wife of any of this men because, she, as she says in her journal, there were a lot more young men, a lot of fine-looking young men um, in Monroe than, than there were girls. But at 20, she decides to become the second wife of Bent. And there's some reasons why she decides to do this. First, she had attended Bent's wedding to his first wife, Julia. Julia was only two years older than she was. And and, uh, Lorraine was 13 when she attends the wedding. So that means Julia would have been 15. So she remembers dancing all night at their wedding. Lorena said, quote, I could not think of hurting a man's wife by marrying her husband, but Aunt Julia told me she would feel much worse if I did not marry her husband than she would if I did. She said that she and Bent had planned for a long time that if they could get my consent, they sure wanted me to be a member of the family, end quote. So that was one of the reasons, and the second reason was she claimed she had a dream about Bent, and then she also wrote, quote, there was no way of getting into the celestial kingdom except by plural marriage. And that, that was the reason that made her do it. And I want to point this out because I've heard some scholars say marriage is not required. Celestial marriage was not required. And that has been argued over because there was a time when it was taught that way. Regardless, we have many examples of members believing it was. It, they believed these fiery sermons that were coming out of the 50s, 60s, and 70s saying eternal marriage is required. And so this is why this beautiful girl with a lot of options decides to become the second wife. And do you remember how I've talked about a caste system? We're going to see this come out in ways you wouldn't imagine it would come out as a second wife. You know, of course she is loved. She, she has this family with Bent. Um, in fact, Lorraine and Julia live in the same house. They eat at the same table. They really enjoy their time together. They work in tandem. They're friends. They raise their kids together. They decorate the home together. Their husband goes on a mission in Norway. And they worked as young women leaders together in the mutual association. And they would have the meetings at their home. And the young girls admired them and their relationship so much that the girls would say, we will never marry unless there can be two of us. And we promise to be as congenial as you two are. I mean, they were just such an example to them. But of course, by the mid-80s, there was this whole system of the Mormon underground. They had hideouts, secret codes, places for hiding people. They had, they had, uh, lookouts that they, um, I, they called them spotters to spot the government. And this whole system for hiding the cohabs from the federal government. 
And as we talked about when we're going to talk about Mormon fundamentalism, Sanjeev Bhattacharya points out that polygamy kind of thrives on this system of secrecy, right? It makes them feel persecuted. It ties them together. It makes them really feel like they're God's chosen people. And so we see this playing out. Now, the marshals would disguise themselves as peddlers. They would come as census takers. Um, they would come as doctors. They would try to do all these things to try to gain entry into the homes. And, and they would even hire their own spotters and sort of spies to question children. They would have and gossip with the neighbors, and even invade the privacy of their own homes. In fact, when Lorena's son was four, she writes this poem for him and teaches him this poem. It says, quote, I'm a little soldier. For truth, I'm going to fight. We boys will scare bad marshals and put them in a fright, end quote. Now, Bent would make friends with one of these head marshals in town, so he really felt like he was protected by this guy. This guy's name was Andy. And so, and Andy was there to root out polygamists, but Bent felt like he was protected. But although that happened, his house would still be surrounded by marshals in 1887. He was surrounded by four marshals. They were peeking into the windows. They kind of burst in. They come in. They look at every bed. They examine all the the pillows, trying to figure out who has slept with whom. You can imagine how humiliating that would have been. Because of the raid, Brent gets sent to prison. He serves five months in prison. Lorena is pregnant at the time. Bent comes back. He's really freaked out. He's adamant that they have to leave, that he has to separate the family, that, that they can't live together anymore. So he asks Lorena to leave. She's a second wife. This is what we see with the caste system. He doesn't ask the first wife to leave. It's the second wife who has to go. So... She goes to Manti. She doesn't want to go. She does not want to go. She says, quote, I had to leave and go into hiding to save my husband from going to the pen again. I and my children had to leave our precious home and hide somewhere probably for years. But where would we go? End quote. So she goes to Manti. It's 60 miles north from her beloved home. And she actually has to leave her children because the bishop in Manti calls her to be a temple worker and tells her to come alone and leave her children there. And... As Harleen points out in her book, these women are more attached usually to their children than they ever are to their husband. And so this is devastating to her. So she has to leave her family. She goes and serves her time at the temple and she comes, you know, and she's waiting and waiting and waiting. And remember, she's a Pinterest mom, right? So her, she would spend her entire day sewing for her kids, working with them in the garden, setting up playdates for them. That was what her existence thrived upon. And now she's without her children. And she's alone. And um, finally, we know that Bent comes to visit her in Manti, and he brings the children. And he says, okay, we're taking you, but now you're moving to Redmond, Utah. And she says, can I just come home? And he says, no. So she has to, she's really scared. She changes her name to Hannah Thompson, and she teaches her children to call their father Uncle Thompson. And in fact, this gets so confusing to their two-year-old that he says, mom, is my daddy my uncle? And in Redmond, she's so secretive. She's very, you know, private. She doesn't let her kids play with other kids. If anyone knows about her, she gets really scared. And we start to see this sort of network of the underground that I'm talking about really take shape because her Monroe bishop comes to try to find her and her bishop in Redmond pretends not to know her. And the Monroe bishop is like, no, 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 I really know her. I'm her bishop. And the Redmond bishop says, if you're lying to me, I could, quote, hang him to any of the large trees in town, end quote. And so this this poor Monroe bishop trying to track her down uh, goes to all these neighbors and they claim to not know her. And of course, she talks about spending a lot of time. She would take her kids to a spring and they would play and she would crochet. It was a very lonely, private, isolated time for her. 
She begged Brent Bent to let her go home to Monroe, but he wouldn't do it. So he eventually moves her and the family to the Valley of San Luis, San Luis Valley in Colorado. This is sort of the net negative of being a second wife. She didn't have the choice of the luxury of her own home. She doesn't get to choose. He gets to come and dictate where she's going to be. And of course, as I travel to this valley in Colorado, it's the sort of weird reverse exodus of the saints coming into the West. She's now leaving and she's seeing a lot. I mean, the, the trail is very similar. It's lonely. There are other pioneers along the way doing the same thing. They're singing old cowboy songs. They're eating, you know, old trail cakes and things like that and playing checkers and things like that. In 1889, Lorena would give birth on the trail to a 14-pound baby, and she almost dies over it. And so finally, right after the birth, um, she her health is pretty bad. They settle in San Juan County, and then they live in Sanford in a one-room log house that Bent built for about a year. They try to return to Utah in 1890. And this is, this is a very sad story. So with all this moving around, of course, Julia is back at home in the same home with her children living, living this out. And Bent is just taking this one wife, moving her around. Now remember, this is her only two wives. So if there were more wives that in marriage, they're of course getting less treatment, uh, less care, less help, less resources. So she's getting moved all around and they decide to try to move back to Utah. And it's on their way there that they spend the night at Lorena's niece's house, who's also a polygamist. And Lorena's niece, niece's husband is sitting around the table. They just finished dinner and they open the paper and they see an announcement of the 1890 manifesto from Wilford Woodruff. And they are shocked. In fact, Lorena writes about this in her journal. She says, quote, there was the manifesto which had been given in conference by President Woodruff. We were greatly astonished and we discussed it for some time. End quote. They were shocked. They, in fact, they, they thought it was a ploy. They didn't believe it. They thought either the devil had, you know, convinced someone in the paper to write something false or it was a church's way of putting off the government again. They knew it had to be fake. She said, quote, it had been called the crowning principle of the gospel and had required such sacrifice on the part of many young women that believed it was not only the way a person could get the highest degree of the celestial kingdom of God, end quote. In fact, her niece's husband thought maybe the manifesto wasn't true, but if it was, he threatened to move his family to Mexico and practice it anyway. I mean, you can imagine how this shook their faith. What a faith crisis to see these leaders that they relied on who told them that they would be blessed for this, that this is the way that they had to do it. And now to say that it was over. So Lorena and her family continue to Utah. And when they get there, they find out the news is true. Bent comes and tells her and she says her feelings were, quote, past description it seemed impossible that the Lord would go back on a principle which had caused so much sacrifice, heartache, and trial, end quote. Bent tells her the news, and he abruptly turns his back and walks out of the house. Of course, he is going to go do this to pray, but she feels really rejected and abandoned, and she says, quote, Oh yes, it is easy for you. You can go home to your other family and be happy with her, while I must be like Hagar sent away, end quote. She prayed that night and felt like maybe this was just God's Abrahamic test for her. Maybe he was just testing her and that if she would just come out of this test okay, she would be okay. Bent eventually comes back and tells Lorena that she would have to start supporting herself. And so she starts doing dressmaking. 
1891, she's pregnant again, and she becomes embarrassed by this. This becomes a thing. And, you know, after the 1890 manifesto, if polygamists are seen openly practicing it, now they become an embarrassment to their neighbors. In fact, her sister told her, quote, a pregnant plural wife was equal to an adulterer. End quote. So you can imagine the shift of being the, you know, the world's most righteous, most chosen people to weird and now even adulterous. She's embarrassed. She tries to hide her pregnancy. She's being shifted from place to place. She lives with Bent's family, his brother at one point, as in the back of the house with his other plural wives. So she can't even live with her husband. It's just really sad. She wrote, quote, the whole people felt that the manifesto almost automatically divorced men and their plural wives and that their family ties, their marriage relationships were dissolved, end quote. We know that, that Lorena didn't feel this way, but it's, it's kind of clear that Bent was trying to act this way. He comes and visits her and he's, and she tells him what her family had said, that this is like an adulterous relationship that she's pregnant. Bent decides to tell her that he and a few other polygamous men had had a consultation and they decided to take their first wives and live with them for time and in this life and that the rest must, quote, keep themselves pure for them in eternity, end quote. So Bent says, look, a lot of us have gotten together. We've decided the only way out of this so we don't get arrested again. We're going to live with our first wives just like old times. They're going to be our wives for this life, so you're not my wife anymore for this life, but I'll take you into eternity, so hey, make sure you keep yourself pure, okay? See you later. He had earlier promised that he would not forsake her, but now here he was doing just that. So she spends the night saying, please don't leave, don't leave, and she's crying and she's weeping until the morning. And she would write, quote, He told me I had wept rivers of tears since he married me, but the weeping didn't change his plans, and Don was there, and he must go, end quote. So in one last act of defiance, she tells him with dry eyes, quote, With a dry eye that he had got to stand by me until the baby was born, then he could go where he wanted to go, end quote. It looks like Bent did not stay with her. In fact... Found in her journals by Harleen is a poem that Lorena had earlier written to Bent when their marriage had just begun, and it's just heartbreaking. She says, Oh, canst thou loved me in old age, through sorrow or misfortune mayest befall. Can thine eyes trace my wrinkled brow, or gaze upon my feeble form, with that same tenderness and love, as they did in youth's bright morn? And when the winter chilling blasts have outside all things frozen— Will there still be a true fun heart beating within each bosom? Unquote. She's writing this poem. Will you still love me when we're old? And she's not even old, and he abandons her. In 1901, an earthquake destroys her adobe house, and she moves in with her oldest son. She would serve as Relief Society president in Monroe for 10 years, starting in 1907. Bent would live with Julia. You know, his, his wife, he decided, was his wife for time. And when she dies, he doesn't go back and try to find Lorena. He just moves in with one of, you know, Julia's children till he dies. He never sees Lorena again. At Lorena's funeral in 1945, Bent was never mentioned, although someone did bring up the fact that, briefly that Lorena was a plural wife. This story is heartbreaking to me, but it is one of so, so many, and it sort of shows this tension. I mean, I have mixed feelings about this, this government raid, because on the one hand, 
the government pressure has really ramped up the secrecy. This is why we see some some sects of the fundamentalism go into really dark places because they thrive on this secrecy, on this on this running from the law, this this persecuted people. But I mean, it really tore up these lives. And of course, the government did not create polygamy. It wasn't their fault. They were responding to it. But if you were a second wife or a third wife or a fourth wife or whatever in this caste system, you would lose and you would lose again. And so next episode is going to be hard. We're going to be talking about those, but we're going to talk about the juxtaposition of how wives in this sort of system, how the first wife fared compared to the second wife, compared to the third wife and things like that. But this is really just important history to know what the church was looking like at the time. And this is a little bit about how the church is developing. Remember, it's starting to get a little bit correlated now. They're starting to get a little bit organized. And at the same time, we're having this tension. We're having, you know, President Woodruff having some of, you know, writing this manifesto and the quorum is divided and half of his apostles start wanting to excommunicate polygamists and the other half are performing plural marriages. And we have even Joseph up until Joseph F. Smith sanctioning these plural marriages. It becomes this really convoluted sort of polygamy focused you know, thing in, in the actual leadership, but on the ground, things were happening a lot differently. So anyway, I really appreciate you listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. Thank you for all those who have sent me such nice notes, uh, that help me keep this going. And I'm so glad to know that this is meaningful to you. So we will see you next week in another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.